This is the Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. And I'm Jacob Young. On the Edge of Innovation, we talk about the intersection between technology and business, what's going on in technology, and what's possible for business. Uh, common vulnerability enumeration, I think it is, right? So this goes back into the helper application world. So let's use Flash as an example. Flash is a great example because Flash is always being exploited. In fact, you know our own company is notorious for having sold a Flash exploit. <laughs> I made the news a while ago. Flash is is used a lot for ads or videos or things like that on news websites or other websites, or at least it used to be. It's a way of almost playing movies, right, or playing ads and things like that. Well, you can take Flash and you can embed specialized payloads into Flash. And then the Flash players themselves were vulnerable to these payloads. And when they would load the payload, the payload would exploit a vulnerability in the player and then give whoever an attacker was or whatever the mech, you know, whatever the end thing was, full access to your system. So in the case of malware, when the system is exploited, rather than rather than you know give command and control of your computer system to some third party, the malware would be uploaded into the system and it would do whatever it was going to do. So if it was ransomware, it would encrypt your system, then maybe propagate upwards other directions. Really again, it's, it's taking advantage of helper applications. Anytime you browse the web, your browser is the main application that sometimes contains its own vulnerabilities that can be exploited. There are lots of other helper applications that come in. There's there's different movie players. There are different content renderers. There are all kinds of things you can plug into a web browser or that you can use in a browser. And any one of those things does have vulnerabilities and can be exploited. So when you browse websites, when you look at anything online, you're effectively trusting that source to have content that's safe. <clears throat> Mm, you are trusting their ad networks, but more importantly, you're trusting them. The ad networks are are less likely, well, they're less likely to cause problems for you than the systems themselves usually. I mean, from a theoretical perspective, I suppose anything can be a problem. But I mean, if you look at, are you familiar with the term watering hole at all? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So right in the safari, you have the watering hole where all the animals go to Right, the animals, they all go to get their water and they drink from this watering hole. And this is the one place where the lion won't eat the gazelle and <laughs> all these things are great and happy. Now imagine some guy comes by with a bio agent that's designed to wipe out these animals and he puts it into the watering hole. And these animals drink and then they go back to their herd and they, unbeknownst to them, spread this infection. And then all of a sudden their prides and their herds and all that just drop dead. 
It's because of a poison watering hole. So a watering hole attack is when you take a website, a common website or a news location or an ad network or anything like that, and you infect it with malware. The people who go and visit that website are then compromised or infected by the malware that exists in that website. If the malware is designed, as we would say at NetroGuard, if it's designed properly, then what will end up happening is when that person takes their infected computer to another network, it will notify the control or the person in charge, whoever deployed the malware that they're on a network and it will give them access to that network too. So just like the infected animals that spread their infection to the rest of the herd, the infected computer will spread their infection to the rest of the computers and network that it connects to. So it's a watering hole. This attack has been around, boy, this type of attack has been around since probably 2000, 2003. Just never really heard about it until I think it was, I think it was called the Aurora incident or the Aurora something. It was when Google was targeted by the Chinese with a watering hole attack. And since then, watering hole attacks have been happening. I can't remember any off the top of my head or recalling the top of my head that were as large scale as that. That was just one example. I mean, there are, of course, we have the ransomware attacks today that are happening bad rabbit or whatever that was they're continuously going but i don't remember anything it's quite the scale of what was going on with google only because google of course is massive you know and the number of people yeah and so they have a lot of viewers the bigger the watering hole the more people that feed from it the, the greater the impact uh yeah, you can't detect what you don't know to look for. A weird example. I mean, imagine we somehow encounter, you know, extraterrestrials and they come in, you know, we come in peace, shoot to kill. They think they're friendly. We think they're friendly. Everything's going great. Meanwhile, they're offloading masses of weapons and we don't recognize the weapons as weapons because we have no idea what they are. And they begin to attack us with these weapons, but they're not like anything we've ever seen before. So we have no idea we're being attacked. And then all of a sudden people just start dropping dead and it takes us a while to begin to realize we've been attacked. Uh, hackers are the aliens. We build weapons that nobody else has seen before. And we attack people in ways that they absolutely don't expect and in ways that the security industry doesn't expect. We come up with new things. And so you really can't defend against the unknown, which kind of goes full circle. And that's why this whole, I protect you again, zero day things is ridiculous because zero days are unknown vulnerabilities. <laughs> you can't defend against the unknown. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly right. I use... Uh, I use a Mac, but within the Mac, I use a hypervisor and I run about four or five different operating systems within that. So I use the virtual machines within containers as my real machines. In fact, right now it's VMware Fusion. One of them is secure, but it can still be sacrificed if that makes any sense. I take snapshots regularly doing something and I think anything bizarre happens, I just revert back to the snapshot that I know was good. Yeah, only in one of them in the Mac VM within the Mac. <laughs> in my Mac within a Mac, yeah, I use Bitdefender and hands-off. I use Bitdefender because it has proven to be one of the most effective pieces of antivirus software out there. When we do our own zero-day research and exploit development, Bitdefender oftentimes will pick up 
our exploits or our tools and we'll be able to say, hey, well, okay, we have to adjust this because Bitdefender just found it. Others just don't seem to do it quite as well. And then hands-off is sort of like Little Snitch. It's a bit more advanced than Little Snitch. Hands-off allows me to control what files are accessed, what ports are being connected to, what hosts are being connected to. So if I decide that I want to browse to xyz.com, hands-off is going to say, hey, do you want to allow this connection? Do you want to allow this access to this file? And I have to explicitly allow everything. And that's nice because if I actually browse to a malicious site and I hit like that a flash exploit or whatever it might be, when that exploit begins to work, I will see that my system is trying to access files and do things that it shouldn't normally do. And I'll say, hey, wait a second. Why are you doing all of this stuff? Something just happened that you revert back. So I can cache it even if I don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah, you do. You have to be vigilant. Absolutely. Yeah, it's non-trivial, unfortunately. Got hmm, So BSD and Linux. BSD, just because I like it. There's not a lot of people that are targeting BSD. I like the port system a lot. And Linux, because Kali is great for penetration testing and doing research, and a lot of tools run on it. I run Ubuntu, but I do that largely for administrative reasons, because it has some cool functions and features. We manage other servers that are similar, systems that are similar. And then I have... I don't. I mean, I, I do have a Windows VM, but I use that specifically for signing malware. <laughs> so we, we have a code signing certificate and we sign all the malware that we push out, <laughs> which is interesting. So <laughs> I use Windows specifically for signing malware. Hmm, go ahead. What kind of data? Hmm? Yeah. So all of the... No. Yeah. Everything that we have is stored in our data center that is related to the business and it's stored in different ways. If something is highly sensitive, it's stored on an encrypted disk and it's also PGP encrypted and there are only three people that can decrypt those files. If it's medium sensitivity, then it's stored in the system with an encrypted file system or it's stored in the system with an encrypted file system within an encrypted database. The idea of encryption though on endpoints like that kind of promotes a false sense of security also. If you were to walk into our data center and you were to lift one of our machines, the drive would be encrypted and you wouldn't know the passphrase to unlock the drive. So of course it wouldn't be useful, but if you're a hacker and you were to hack one of these systems, the content's already decrypted because the system is running and you're going to gain access to the system and its respective data. Likewise, encrypted databases, everybody always talks about them. Oh, let's use encrypted databases. They're great. Well, if you hack a system with an encrypt the database, the key exists somewhere because the database users, the people that are responsible for using that system, they have to have a way of decrypting the data. And we have yet to find an instance where we breached a network, encountered an encrypted database, and couldn't find a way to decrypt it. So really encryption is not going to protect, it's going to slow things down. The best way to encrypt something and protect is with something like PGP. But again, that's non-trivial. I mean, PGP and managing that kind of... And <laughs> you lose your keys, you're screwed. Hmm? That goes into that Mac VM that I have protected by little snitch and Bitdefender. And I, I just have those there. Yeah, I back them, yep, back them up to, to the cloud. I dump them to the cloud, uh, iCloud. <laughs> just make sure that nothing is sensitive, that's all. Nothing is compromising or sensitive. <laughs> that's the best way. Anything that, that could ever be compromising or sensitive or somehow used to harm my family or harm myself, I just don't put on computers. I try to make sure that that stuff either stays in memory or is on paper in a vault or it just doesn't exist. <laughs>
Always worried about keeping current with IT? Savior Labs is an IT and web services firm that cares for your business and team. Savior Labs solves problems so you can focus on what you do best. Prepare for 2018 with a free IT assessment. Just follow the link in our show notes and enter code SAVIOR, S-A-V-I-O-R. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you should. It's getting convoluted unnecessarily so, and it's getting complex and more and more difficult to understand because of the security market. Good security should follow the KISS rule. Keep it simple, stupid. The reason why our customers keep coming back to us, for example, is because we keep it simple, stupid. We look at very effective, very efficient solutions. We don't focus on bloatware because of security fatigue, which apparently is a new thing that people are talking about. We focus on, on effectiveness. The solutions that exist today are really pretty. They have a lot of the pew-pew charts. <laughs> they look they look really cool. And maybe, you know, maybe they are catching really high volume of attacks. The problem is is they're also catching a lot of non-attacks. And so somebody sitting down staring at a screen with stuff scrolling by all the time is going to get worn out pretty quickly. Right. And so the interface of the person, the data that's presenting to the person is ineffective. And so the whole solution becomes ineffective. Your network intrusion prevention systems from a, a theoretical perspective, they make a lot, a lot of sense. But the part that's not being considered there is the person that has to sit there and churn through all that data every single day. You just can't do it. So the security industry is, is chock full of solutions, which we don't even call solutions. They're, they're chock full of distracted technologies like this. And these technologies are continually being marketed and pushed by other businesses. And in the end, if you follow it, it all has to do with money. Everybody wants to make their money, right? The breaches that are happening today are also beneficial to the security industry because these breaches mean people are going to come and look for more technology, more services, more solutions. In all reality, people don't need to do a lot to be secure. In all reality, people should not be focusing on breach prevention. They should be to a degree, but the real thing they should be looking at is preventing a damaging breach. It's impossible to prevent a breach. Someday, somehow, somebody is going to breach your network. But if you can detect that breach when it happens, before it becomes damaging, you can prevent the damage and you can prevent yourself from ever making the news. That's how you protect networks. And the way that you detect a breach right after it happens is with things like internal honeypots and solutions that can pick up on lateral movement. Yeah. So we sell these now. It's something that we've started manufacturing and selling and developing, whatever you want to call it, probably about a year ago because of their effectiveness. So what it is, it's a computer system that does 
absolutely nothing except for sit there and look like other computer systems. You deploy these fake computer systems in different parts of the network, depending on how threats are likely to enter your network and move through your network. And they're tempting. So a hacker breaks into an infrastructure and a hacker begins to probe the network. The very act of probing the network when it contacts one of these systems, these honeypots, is going to set off an alarm. That honeypot is going to say, hey, user Joe just connected to me. Now, there's absolutely no reason for any legitimate user to ever connect to honeypot because they do nothing, right? So anytime anybody connects to honeypot, by default, it's illegitimate. So there's, there's no false positive. There's no <laughs> continuous stream of data like you're going to see with solutions. Hacker breaks in, hacker probes network, hacker trips two or three of these things. Right. System admin will get an alert within seconds, likely, of a hacker breaching a network, maybe minutes when a, ha a hacker breaching a network. If that admin responds to those alarms in, in fast time, quick time, that admin can likely kick that intruder out of the network before any damage is ever caused. They can say, hey, my web server just started scanning my network. That should never happen. Let me go and kill the connection and let me go put up a temporary site or let me revert to a back to a backup and just see what that'll happen. But this was a breach. It was a breach that doesn't matter because sensitive information was never captured. Meanwhile, what's going on is the inverse of this. People are focusing on breaches, and this is why I say the industry is convoluted. People are focusing on breach prevention. We hear this all the time. It's an impossible task, but they're not focusing on post-breach detection. And so what ends up happening is they suffer a breach and the hacker sits there and says, okay, was that detected? It's almost never detected. I mean, I, I can't think of the last time that we were detected breaking into a network. The hacker says, okay, were we detected? The answer is no. Great. Now let's just spread like wildfire throughout the network because nobody has any post-breach detection capabilities. And it's true. So there's this gap. Mind the gap, right? There's a gap that exists and that's what we're exploiting. The security industry as a whole is upside down. And the solutions that it's providing are also upside down. Rather than providing you with a solution that says, hey, you're being hacked and it's real, do something about it. They're providing you solutions that say, you know, a million times a day, uh, you might be getting hacked here. So it doesn't work. So is it getting better? Is it getting worse? I think the threats are evolving. I think some of the technology is evolving. I think software vendors like Microsoft are definitely evolving. They're doing a much better job and they have a big part to do with good security. I think a lot of the other software vendors, especially the ones who build the applications that are used within Microsoft, need to really catch up and start taking security seriously. But I think that rather than being something that says that could be a fairly simple type of thing, I think it's become a big convoluted mess. And I think that convoluted mess is making it hard for normal everyday people to be able to really understand where to go and what to do. <clears throat> oh boy, I don't know. If we keep on allowing bureaucrats to dictate the direction of the industry, and if we keep on allowing entrepreneurs that are financially motivated rather than technically motivated to dictate the direction, as long as it's being directed by really policies and money, it's going to continue to get worse. When? Yes, that's exactly right. So inevitably, I think that that's the case. Um, I think we've already passed that point. Um, you know, there's no reason why businesses should be suffering breaches the way they have. I mean, the Equifax breach, in my opinion, along with Target and the multiple breaches of Sony and Hannaford and Ashley Madison, I mean, these stand out because these are ones that were particularly silly, but these breaches shouldn't have happened. And knowing what I know about how businesses operate, the reasons why these breaches most likely happened is either because a CEO or some senior level executive didn't do their job properly and they didn't pay attention to what they were supposed to be paying attention to, or they didn't give security.
well enough of a budget, right? There is a political reason there. Or it was because they believed they were doing their job properly and they thought that they were listening to the advice of bona fide experts when in fact they were just sort of being fed Kool-Aid and they were growing a false sense of security. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, yeah, and a big neon sign that said, hey, come take it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yep. You can't. There's no way. And it's not the kind of thing where we're going to begin to see the impact of it until, you know, several years go by. But if you think about the information that Equifax has, how many banks and how many healthcare providers and how many wealth management firms use that exact same information to authenticate you when you forget your password? Right. So using. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So this information can and I, I'd be surprised if it wasn't some point used for some major heists. I mean, you, you can clean people out with this information if you do it carefully and thoughtfully and spend enough time doing it. And of course, you have social security fraud and you have all kinds of other things that could be happening in the future. People die, you take their identities. The scale of what this could do is significant. And what is <laughs> almost laughable and, and really ridiculous, really, about the whole thing is you look at Europe. Europe doesn't have a credit bureau. You know, Europeans have credit cards. They don't have credit bureaus like Equifax. They don't need this person, this place, this business to maintain all that history. They have different ways of doing things. They work. And I know this because my business partner came in from Europe, bought a house here not too long ago with his wife and all that. The whole process, there's no credit. Don't have any credit yet. I can, can still do all this stuff in Europe. Why do I have to have this thing called credit here? So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, 
They do, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that we should follow suit with what most of Europe is doing is just get rid of these credit agencies. And I think that we should go into a more modernized way of tracking and verifying credit. And from the little that I understand, be off here, but I believe that what happens is if you take out a credit card in Europe and you don't pay off the credit card, there's a way of communicating to other credit card companies without a score, without sensitive information that, hey, you know, there's this debt that exists. The level of information Equifax has is too much. Uh, they have way too much information. Yeah. 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 I mean, they, they and they don't, frankly, they don't need that level of information to know that you are a good buyer. And really, they don't need to know that Paul or Adriel or, or anybody, they don't need to know their name. They just need to know credit card score and some kind of an identifier, a unique identifier. That's all they need. Yet because they're using this antiquated system and because they've been collecting information because they make most of their money by reselling our information without us really being fully aware of it to God knows who, but they have that. And they've put us all at risk and now here they are. So yeah, I think that those companies should just be done away with. And I think that we need to have a more modernized way of doing this. I really do. Freeze your credit, call Equifax, call TransUnion, call Experian and pay the $15 or whatever it is to freeze your and, and Equifax, frankly, should be doing that for free. They shouldn't be charging you to freeze your credit, but do that. Because if you freeze your credit, that'll at least help to prevent people from taking loans out and taking things out in your name because it won't be possible to pull your credit history. Doesn't mean you're safe though, because again, you can still use that information to access resources that belong to you. Financial things, you know, wealth management, retirement funds, whatever, you can still use that. And if you get in, there's no reason why you can't transfer money out and steal money that way. So it's unfortunate. It is, but you have to be very careful even with that. When you purchase penetration testing services, you have to make sure that you're purchasing genuine services that produce a realistic level of threat and not services that give you these squirt gun tests. It's the, the analogy is penetration tests are the equivalent of testing body armor with a squirt gun as opposed to, right? And there, there are ways to do it. So we, we actually published a white paper that's it was published on Forbes. It was picked up by Forbes. The subject, if it was something under the paper, but the article was this year, why not take data security seriously? And so if you Google that, you'll find a white paper that we published in it. It really gives you non-biased key points on how to identify a genuine penetration testing vendor and how to differentiate between the people that are going to be selling snake oil. One of the most important differentiators there is the snake oil vendors will sell based on the number of IP addresses or number of web applications that you have. It's called count-based pricing. And if you have 10 IPs, like I said initially, and you bill $500 per IP address, that's all great and good. You're going to have a $5,000 price tag. But what happens if zero of those IPs are providing any services? You just spent five grand on zero seconds worth of work. Likewise, what happens if each one is offering 40 man hours worth of services? Well, no pen testers will be working for $12.50 an hour. So any vendor that uses count-based pricing as a part of their pricing methodology, you can rest assured you're going to be getting that squirt gun test. It's a lot you can do, and it's a lot of stuff you have to cut through to understand before you can get to the good stuff. No, I think this was pretty thorough. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> you know, that exists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yep. 
My pleasure and anytime. The Edge of Innovation is brought to you in partnership with Savior Labs. Savior Labs exists to help businesses mature and strategize for the future. Learn more about Savior Labs at SaviorLabs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. For the show notes and more information about Paul, please visit paulparisi.com. The Edge of Innovation is produced by Jacob Young in conjunction with copious amounts of coffee. Music on today's episode was from bensound.com. Paul can be found on Twitter at pdparisi and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash pdparisi. This episode, like all our episodes, is transcribed and available at paulparisi.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.